The reading this evening is Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 25, and can be found on page 3 of the Bibles. It's the very first page of Genesis. So, chapter 1, verses 14 to 25. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly over the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind, And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lynn. Um, As Chris said, I'm Louise, I'm on the staff team here, uh, and I'm excited to be speaking to you this evening. It's been exciting that we've been already singing about God's beauty and his power um, and his place in creation. Uh, And tonight we're going to explore three ways in which uh, I see in this passage that God's sovereignty is displayed. We're going to focus on those days four and five, and then that tiny bit um, of day six that is in there at the end. Um, So shall we pray before we get started? God, we thank you that you are God, that you are Lord and that you are King. And we ask that you would speak to each of us this evening and that your word and your presence uh, would take root in each of our hearts. Amen. Amen. Now, if the first three days of creation are about sketching a picture, the kind of next three days are about colouring it in like a fresh new colouring book with those thick black line drawings waiting for the ink or the crayons to arrive. It's waiting for colour and it's waiting for life. Days one, two and three of creation showed God bringing order out of chaos to lay the foundations of creation. 
to move a world that was formless and void to become one which had shape and purpose and which was ready for life. Each space and structure that God created is now going to be filled and the purpose of those spaces becomes clearer and clearer as God continues to create within them. As he kind of colours in the sketch of the heavens and the earth, the sketch of the light and the darkness and the sketch of the waters and the land that he drew in the first three days of creation. As that happens, we see why those spaces were made to be. And we're going to look at this image uh, which Jack shared with us last week, which lays out this helpful understanding of the creation narrative uh, that centers around this Hebrew phrase, tohu vabohu. Now, tohu expresses um, that bit on the left, the formless chaos of the pre-creation state into which God brought shape and form. And then the second part, the verbohu, is that empty, void nature of that formlessness into which God brings occupants and inhabitants and life. And without this model, I think the order of creation feels more confusing, especially in regards to the light. It's easy to stumble on the question of why the sun was created on day four after light was already created on day one. Yet perhaps it's helpful to see the sun and the moon as collecting the light. The light has become moulded by God into the greater and the lesser lights, and the vault of the sky has become filled with light by the sun and the moon, as well as the stars in that amazing part, which is basically the biggest understatement in history ever. The creation of billions of stars in our universe has been reduced to five words in the translation that we use. He also made the stars. Yet the National Geographic actually recognizes this. They recognize the enormity and the awesomeness of the stars. So much so, they actually have a problem with the lyrics, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. If you Google stars, it's actually on their first webpage about stars. They have a problem with it, and they suggest some alternative lyrics. Um, Emit, emit, gigantic ball of gas, which (laughs) maybe isn't so settling for your toddler, um, but probably does relay some of the truth uh, of the stars. It relays more of the beauty. It relays more of the magnificence of stars. So we do know the beauty of the stars, and we know even just a little bit the wonder and the complexity of those dots that we see in the night sky. But for God, it's five words. (laughs) He also made the stars. Creating them is easy. He's so powerful that it's just kind of an add-on. Then those two lights, the greater and the lesser, so the sun and the moon, and of course the stars, they become more glorious in their collected state on day four. They become more serviceable as they fill the heavens and they're given this royalty and a status to govern both the day and the night. On that day, on day four, the sun and the moon are appointed by God to host the light kind of an ordaining for them to be instruments of light on earth. 
And through that appointing of the sun, the moon, and the stars, a new purpose is brought to that light, a new purpose that humans have always made use of to mark and measure time and direction. The lights are important. They are good. They are magnificent. But they remain under the sovereignty of God. That's thought to be why, whilst talking about the sun and the moon, the author calls those lights the greater and the lesser light, rather than using the pagan names of the time for either. They're given a royal responsibility, but it's abundantly clear in the text that neither the sun or the moon are deities. The author wants us to recognize that. They are not gods, nor are they controlled by gods, as the surrounding cultures claimed. They are created by a creator, and they exist beneath his reign, because God is sovereign over them. Genesis is just so wonderfully written as we read the author deliberately addressing and denying the belief systems which saw the sun and moon as deities, or at least representations of them. The author is denying that these things are worthy of worship. The book is just a direct opposition to those ancient cosmological ideas that challenged view of the author of Genesis. The author wants you to know about the existence of one true God that is sovereign over all. Now, the Babylonians, the people who existed alongside the Israelites, are thought of by many uh, as the first known astrological culture, having thought to have developed the first basis of the signs of the zodiac. Um, And so they see the celestial beings as divine, and they see that the studying of them helps them to see events uh, that are going to happen on earth. And so at the same time that Genesis is written, cultures were putting elements of creation into a place and into a status that only God could occupy. And the beauty of this text is that God is given his rightful place over and over. And people have worshipped the sun and the moon for thousands of years because of their splendor, rather than worshipping the one who created them rather than worshipping God, whose divine splendor is displayed in his creation, but that it points back to him. Now Moses, he pleads with his people about this very thing uh, in Deuteronomy 4, uh, and he says this in verse 19. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshipping things your, the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. He warned them, do not worship those things. Worship God. Of course, it's good to ponder the beauty of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And let that wonder rise within us. That's a good thing. It's good that nature constantly acts as a reminder to worship. But the crucial question remains. Where is our worship going? Or I suppose rather, who is our worship directed towards? Genesis places God as sovereign over all things. He is God over all creation because he created everything. And the challenge to us, at least our first challenge perhaps this evening, is that just as humanity's history shows the pull to worship things that are not God, 
that same tendency continues on in our own culture and in our own lives and in our own hearts. In the same way that some ancient cultures place the sun and the moon in the place of God, we so often find ourselves giving the things the place that only God deserves. And maybe that is something that we see popular in our culture today. Maybe we do see crystals and horoscopes. There might be people in here with that experience that see um, that as something to be worshipped and to be focused on. And if that is kind of where you're at right now, I just want to point you towards a God um, who reigns over all things, who is both powerful and personal, like Jack said last week, and who can satisfy and sustain you in a way that other things just never ever will. Or maybe we're giving kind of more non-spiritual things the place of God in our lives. Things that are good, perhaps even things that are gifts from God, but they're not God. Things that creep up slowly on our priority list until suddenly we realize that actually they're receiving our worship, that they're receiving our focus and our time and our love. Maybe it's success or academic achievement or serving others or whatever it might be. They can all be recipients of our worship rather than God who is worthy of all our praise. He's worthy of our praise, of our thoughts, of our thanks, of our desires, of everything that we have because of his sovereignty over it all. His sovereignty reminds us to place him as number one above all else that our heart may pull us towards. And we're called to place him as king, as king who is the centre and the purpose of our worship. So now that we've thought a little bit about what might take the place of God as the focus of our worship, I actually wonder if there's a second, slightly more subtle, different challenge presented by this text about God's sovereignty And it's as God creates the creatures of the sky and the sea. Because interestingly, special attention is given by the author to the great creatures of the sea. And in other translations, uh, those are referred to as great sea monsters. And now Canaanite literature at the time spoke of this great sea dragon that was the enemy of Baal. Um, And he's a god that was worshipped by the Canaanite people. And the stories of their literature tell of battles between Baal and this sea creature, with the creature being in rebellion to their god. And there's, as always, different interpretations of the meaning of the inclusion of the sea monsters and the sea creatures in this creation story. And while I don't think we should get too stuck uh, on ancient worshipped gods, um, it might be useful to see this as a statement from the author about the power of God and his sovereignty over all things, even the things that we think are outside of his rule and reign. The sea creatures, great and small, are created by God and they are not in rebellion to him. In other creation narratives, they are. They're in rebellion to those people's gods. But in this one, they're not in rebellion. And they definitely do not have the power or the strength that other cultures attribute to them. For the author of Genesis and for us tonight, God is God and nothing else comes close. 
not even the great sea creatures. Again, the author of Genesis is appearing to push aside myths from other traditions and place the spotlight on the supremacy of God. And this time it's showing God's sovereignty over the things that maybe we see as a a threat to God or perhaps the things that our culture tells us is in rebellion to him. I mean, maybe science perhaps, our culture tells us again and again that science is in rebellion to God. But actually God is sovereign over all of that. It's the things that might seem too big, the things that might seem too bad or actually too difficult for God to reign over that I believe the author is also saying, yeah, God's got that in his hands too. He's got that in his hands too. And don't get me wrong, I I don't believe that God created the things we fear like he created the sea creatures. Um, He only brings good. That's what his heart is for. But even over the bad, he's in power over it all. There are many things that we might fear or that we might see as a threat to God, whether that's conflicts in our world or illness for those we love or broken relationships that exist in our lives or arguments against our faith. I imagine, though, that for most of us, the greatest of these things that seem like a threat to the power of God is death. But the encouragement that I have for you this evening is that Genesis wants us to know that God is so, so great that nothing exists beneath his power. Nothing exists beneath He is above everything, and everything is beneath him. Even death, even that thing that most of us fear above all else, is still within the reign of our God. And that is a beautiful truth. And it's because of his almighty power and his humble sacrifice. So when we know and we follow him, we are able to place everything we could ever think of in his hands because even death is conquered as we are given eternal life. So basically a sea creature stands no chance if actually death is under the reign of God. The cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means we can declare God's reign over all things. And Paul does exactly that in his letter to the Ephesians. And I'd love to read you um, this little part from Ephesians 1. He writes this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Nothing is outside of his power. Nothing is outside the power of God or the power of Jesus. And despite culture and the enemy trying to place things in opposition to God, they're powerless compared to him. 
So as we live as people of faith, as we pray and as we contend for our world and for our families, we can be both comforted and encouraged by knowing the power of a God who sees us and a God who is bringing healing and justice, whether that's in this life or the next. And it's a God who is sovereign even over the things that we think are outside of his control. God's sovereignty extends from the things that we might worship to the things that we might fear. And lastly, I just wanted to use a few minutes to talk about God's sovereignty over creation and what that means for our relationship with the world that we live in. And God's sovereignty and, of course, his immense creativity is shown to us on day five. He's already filled the sky with lights and now he fills the sea with all the things which swim and live in the deep. And he fills the sky with birds, which, by the way, includes anything that flies. So that's insects as well, like in their millions and billions of varieties. Whether you like them or not, God made them. And then as we dip into day six, out of the land, God fashioned creatures in all their diversity and all their beauty and all their strangeness. And honestly, a God who can create creatures from baboons to blobfish is, is a God I want to worship. So that's cool with me. Um, but in Sue's video that we watched a little earlier, uh, she challenged our thinking with the questions surrounding our relationship to our earth, our responsibility to our earth, and that command to rule over and subdue creation. And it is the very beings created on day five that we are called to care for, as well as those creatures made on the first part of day six. It's those very creatures. And verse 26 of Genesis 1 names that it's the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that moves along the ground. That is what humanity is designated by God to rule, to look after, to care for, and to love. Yet what do we see? What do we see around us? We see species classed as endangered due to habitat loss or climate change and poaching, etc., etc. You could go on forever. The species that exist in the sky, in the sea, and on the land, they're subject to our selfishness and our greed. The world that God saw was good is not looking so good right now. God's reign over all that he has created should move us to treat it with love and with honour, as something owned by someone else, yet gifted to us and given over to our care. It's a way for us to worship, to recognise God's creation as God's creation, and to treat it accordingly. We've explored those three different ways uh, pretty quickly tonight, but I hope they're helpful, in which God's sovereignty appears in days four and five of creation. One, that God is sovereign over all the majestic creations that tempt our focus. So he, and only he, is deserving of our worship. And two, that he is sovereign over the difficult things or the things which our world may present as opposing him. They too are under his reign. So we can live knowing that there is nothing which holds anywhere near as much power 
as our God. And three, that he is sovereign over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and the creatures of the land. They belong to him. So we must treat creation that way. There's a call tonight, I believe, for us to give the crown back to God. The crown back to God who filled the foundations of creation, who filled in that sketch of the universe with beauty and life, with movement. And there's a call for us to live within God's sovereignty, for God's sovereignty, and actually to live because of his sovereignty. I'd love to invite the band uh, to join me. Um, And then if you're able, please do stand uh, as we respond in worship together. Let me pray as we prepare to sing. God, we thank you for creation. We thank you for what we read in Genesis, that you are above it all, that you were there before it all, and that, God, you are creative, that you are powerful, but you are also personal and you are here with us now. And we just pray uh, for whatever it is tonight that is from you to sink into our hearts. May we give the crown back to you. Whatever seems to demand our worship, Lord, we pray we would give our worship to you tonight. Would you take away fear? Would we be able to dispel the lies of our culture which say that things are more powerful than you? And would you challenge us tonight to treat your creation as your creation and to love it as you do? Amen.